This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 184 with guest Aiden Donnelly Rowley. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another recovery episode of the podcast. I am so glad that you're here. Whether you are an avid listener of the podcast or if you are just joining me, maybe you are a person in recovery or thinking about being in recovery and you are checking out these podcast episodes, I am so happy that you are here. The guest today, Aiden, is someone who I read her blog a long time ago, Ivy League Securities, and she is someone that I followed for a while and you'll hear her story. I won't give too much away and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about her. She is a very special human being. I'm super glad to share her story with you today. And it's interesting. I was being interviewed by Jean McCarthy and Jean McCarthy is over there at the Unpickled blog. Many of you who are in the recovery world probably know who she is. She was on our last season of the recovery season. I will put Jean's interview in the show notes. And she was interviewing me about my new book that's coming out, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. And her podcast over there at the Bubble Hour is all about recovery. And she was saying to me, this book isn't specifically about recovery, but it is about recovery. And I had never actually thought about that. And she's absolutely right. How to Stop Feeling Like Shit is all about recovery. It really is. And there's so many things that I say in that book, even like, you know, little sayings and a lot of things that I learned in recovery when I was more specifically recovering from alcoholism when I first decided to get sober in 2011. I learned so much when I was specifically doing the work for recovery and I put so much of that into how to stop feeling like shit. And that book is available for pre-order right now and the link is over at yourkickasslife.com slash H-T-S-F-L-S. I'm also going on a book tour. I might be coming to a city near you. I'm also doing a couple of workshops. One of them is in New York City. The other one is in Chicago. They're almost sold out. So if you are interested in either of those, I know for the Chicago workshop, I have two people that are traveling far and wide to come. So even if it's not near you, I would love to have you there. I will put those links in the show notes for you to be able to go and check out those half day workshops. And also one thing that I'm I'm equally as excited about is If you order my book during the pre-order phase and in the very beginning, there is a free book study group that I am offering for anyone that purchased the book. I'm so excited about this because I am so passionate about the actual work, (laughs) not just the book, but the work and the content that is included in this book. It is rich and juicy and can change your life if you let it, if you actually put in the work, if you actually commit and take some action on it. And I wanted to create a space for you where you would have the opportunity to do that. This work can be so incredibly profound when you do it with other people that are like-minded, that are wanting the same things that you do, that are on the same path that you are. So I've created this free group for you. 
It is not going to be offered forever. So if you want to get in and be guided by me, the author, you can go over to that same link, yourkickasslife.com slash HTSFLS. That's where you can pre-order the book and then swing back by and claim your bonuses. There's lots of prizes over there too that I'm going to be giving away shortly. And one of the bonuses is this class, which I'm very excited to host in January. So let's get on with the interview. Before we do that, let me tell you a little bit about Aiden. Aiden Donnelly Rowley is the author of two novels, The Ramblers and Life After Yes, the founder of Happier Hours Literary Salons and Dribe, an Instagram community of people living or curious about living the dry life, and the co-host of Edit Podcast, Editing Our Drinking and Our Lives. She lives in Manhattan, where she was born and raised with her husband and three girls. And without further ado, here is Aiden. Welcome, Aiden. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited. I am too. And I've, I've followed your story. It's been, it still kind of blows my mind that it's 2017. <laughs> I know. I know. Tell me about it. I think my friend Courtney Webster, who's been on this podcast before, told me about your blog years ago, maybe back in 2011 or 2012. And that's where I would love to start is, can you start by telling us your drinking story? And I know that you spent a full year sober in 2012 and were writing about it on your blog and then went back to drinking publicly. You were talking about it and then quit again. So can you tell us that whole story and what that actually looked like? Absolutely. Yeah. So my drinking story, I think like all of ours kind of begins with that first drink or those first drinks. And I, you know, began dabbling, drinking a little bit in high school, nothing big. And it was all very innocuous and kind of joyful and fun. And it is worth mentioning that I come from a family of drinkers where alcohol is very much romanticized and cocktail hour is intellectual with, you know, like a nice glass of wine in hand. So I grew up around alcohol being ever present and also very positive. And I like to mention that because ultimately when I decided to give that up, it felt like I was giving up a little piece of my identity with respect to my family. So it's important to mention that. But I, you know, like so many of us, I went on to college and drank a lot, but also performed at a very high level. I'm very achievement oriented and a perfectionist. And again, I mention these things because I think they go hand in hand with drinking. Mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting and underexplored. But college for me was all about work hard and play hard. And I balanced it pretty well, I have to say. And I, you know, continued drinking when I went to law school soon thereafter, and really didn't worry about it, right? I drank a lot. I was a binge drinker, like most of the people around me. And I really I had fun with it. I felt like it was a sign of youth. I really didn't worry about it. I was hungover and I got over my hangovers and I just kept on going. And I, and I would say that I really began to kind of worry about my drinking probably as early as 2007 when my dad, who's, whom I was very, very close with and who was kind of larger than life and the linchpin of my big, very tight family got sick. And it was the first thing that happened to me, I would say, that I just, I'm not sure I knew how to handle or cope with on my own. And I feel like looking back, certainly that's when my experience with alcohol got a little bit darker, which is interesting because it's not that I necessarily began to drink more, but the associations became a little darker and I was trying to escape something and numb feelings that were very hard. Mm -hmm. So that was really a turning point. Although again, I wasn't necessarily aware of it at the time. 
And, you know, that also coincided with me the years where I was becoming a mom. I have three daughters who are now 10, 8, and 6, which is so hard to believe. But they were really, you know, I was starting to have babies. And we all know, or those of us who are moms know, that adds a lot of anxiety to the existential portrait, if you will. So were you still working when your girls were little or did you quit? So I practiced at a law firm for a very short time, less than two years. And when I quit my job at the law firm in 2005, I had just gotten married. I did not yet have children. And I quit that job with the very specific goal of writing my first book. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing the kind of youthful confidence I had, but I really, I just like left my job. And then the following Monday, just sat down and started writing, which is just so, it's so funny because you and I both know as authors that it's just not, it's just not. I'm just going to sit down and write and they're going to mail me checks who these people are. That's just not the way, that's just not the way it works. Anyway, but I'm glad actually that you mentioned that because I think my shift in kind of professional identity from having this very quintessentially revered career as a lawyer and kind of just tossing that aside, which was really the right thing for me to do, but it's still a very big deal, existentially speaking, to then embrace life as a creative, which is very uncertain mm-hmm. and very murky and involves a lot. Even even now, I have two books published and you know a lot of really good people on my team there's a lot of self-doubt. So back then when I was just really like a complete rookie who really truly did not know what she was doing, I think there was a lot of anxiety and questions I had about my identity, which also exacerbated my drinking, right? So there were a lot, there was kind of the perfect storm of this big professional switch, kind of this illness and loss of my dad and kind of my foray into motherhood which took drinking, which was historically kind of a happy, controlled thing, and made it less so. Mm -hmm. So my drinking, you know, you and I have discussed, my drinking certainly got to a point where it very much troubled me, but it wasn't a situation where people were pulling me aside or saying things like I should stop. There were very, very few, if any, outward ramifications of my drinking, When I really began to question it and worry about it, it was largely private and internal. Lots and lots of conversations with my husband, who has been a rock this entire time. But it was not something that was truly on display for my friends or my family or something that people were worried about or really bringing up with me. So it was really, I contained it really well and it was very much camouflaged. And, you know, to the outside eye, I was thriving and, you know, leading this very kind of charmed, happy life here in New York City. So kind of leading up to 2012, I was having this kind of internal struggle, which I'm sure many of you guys listening can relate to. And it's very, it's it's, it's a very, very lonely feeling to be in this cycle of kind of drinking more than we want to be drinking and then feeling the after effects, whether they're physical or emotional. And for me, they were often both mm-hmm. and, and not really feeling like we had a grasp on it. You know, I wasn't completely out of control. I was not, you know, there were no big crash and burn stories, but there was a lot of self-loathing and there was a lot of shame and there was a lot of like, why do I keep doing this? I know better. Mm-hmm. And I really felt like no one around me was having the conversation I needed to be having, which was not necessarily, thankfully, about addiction per se, but was more about like, I'm doing this thing that I don't want to be doing and it's not making me happy. 
and I kind of want to stop doing it, but I don't even know what that looks like. And yeah. I don't know what that would be like because everyone around me drinks. Mm-hmm. And so this weird kind of private hell, frankly, struggling with this thing. And so what I did in 2012, after suffering some kind of pretty acute anxiety, frankly, after the birth of my third daughter, which I realized was anxiety with the help of a really skilled therapist. I, you know, I I began to talk to her and open up to her about my drinking. And she agreed with me that it wasn't good, that I was not helping myself out by drinking the way I was drinking. But she was not concerned in an ultimate sense. She didn't want me to go to any meetings. She just, she was like, you're drinking because you're really anxious. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stop you for a second because I want to okay. I want to dive more, put a bookmark right where you ended. But okay. I, I think that this is something that we haven't addressed on on the recovery series. I've definitely talked about anxiety before and the anxiety episodes have been really high downloaded episodes. So I know y'all listening. There's a, I've got a lot of anxiety women out there. You know, my own hand is raised as well. Right. What I'm curious from you is, can you describe what your anxiety looked like and felt like for you and what you did how you felt like alcohol was solving the problem. Okay. Yeah. It's a really good question. And again, I really think it's underexplored. So I'm happy to talk about that. So after my third daughter was born, I just, you know, I expected things to be easier because Mm -hmm. I had two daughters before. Right. So I kind of knew what I was doing. I was not a nervous first time mom. I felt like I knew what I was doing and I didn't feel right. You know, and I knew that I didn't feel right it wasn't explicit concerns or worries about my baby or me. There was very little that was discreet, but what it was, was this kind of bigger feeling of overwhelm and of feeling just like a little bit out of control and just like my head was buzzing. And like, I had a lot of moving pieces in my life. I mean, that's what happens when you have three little kids and lots of stuff going on in a busy life. And we all have that. Right. And so what it would feel like, and again, this was when it was at its worst, was I I just didn't feel right. Like I felt foggy. And, you know, basically by the end of the day, I would just walk right to the fridge and pull out a a glass of wine. And immediately, I have to say, that would take the edge off. Mm -hmm. Right? It would Mm -hmm. like take everything down a couple of notches. And I needed it. I mean, it was very much, I felt like I needed it. Let me rephrase. It was an, you know, this ongoing kind of story of self-medication Yeah. because I just didn't feel good. I was like, my energy wasn't there. I was really overwhelmed. I felt like I was dropping balls because that's what being a mom is. Right. And that's, that's what having a busy life as a woman is. And I just, I didn't feel right. And I felt just kind of out of sorts. And I felt like kind of like I was on high alert a lot of the time. And I still feel those things now, but oh my God, I feel them like 90% less, Mm -hmm. which is very, very interesting. So this therapist to me said, you know, I was really worried about the drinking thing. So this felt like this big confessional that I'm telling this professional that I, I drink a lot. (laughs) She was like, you don't even drink. Like she was just like, not, she didn't even like bat an eye. She's like, you're highly anxious. And you're drinking because you're highly anxious and you need something to turn your brain off, right? Because you're like type A and you are constantly thinking and plotting and planning and you probably don't know how to relax. And this one thing, this, this, you know, glass of wine or two or three or bottle, frankly, is how you know how to turn it off. Right. Right. So I think a lot of people I now know that I'm talking about all this can really relate to that. And the problem and what I didn't understand and what she kind of clarified for me, and it was a light bulb moment, was that 
what happens is when you drink like that, when you drink in that kind of repetitive, habitual way, it is making the anxiety so much worse mm-hmm. because you're, you're waking up the next day with all of the stuff that's eating at you and overwhelming you and you don't feel good because you put all that alcohol in your body. Mm -hmm. So then it's like, it becomes this horrible cycle and it's hard to kind of figure out what's what. But for me, and it's interesting, again, in real time, I didn't know what was happening, but I can, like with the point of kind of retrospect now, I can look back and I can see like, I've always been an anxious person. My anxiety has served me for the most part because I've achieved and I've, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) set goals and I've reached them. But like when it gets, when ratchets up too high, which I think it tends to do in adulthood when we're juggling many things the alcohol piece doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And it just makes things worse. Well, there's a saying in recovery that that it works until it doesn't. And I think that it sounded like it did work for you for a little bit. And it, and I'm in my experience, it worked for me as well, but there comes a point where that cycle starts to catch up with you. And it just, it's that, it's that groundhog day. Just every day is the same thing. Yeah. And it's, it's so hard. And then you start really like doubting yourself because you're like, I don't even know. I don't even know if I have the ability to stop doing this because that, that broken record of kind of feeling compelled to stop and then not stopping. It's really, it's hard on us, you know? So 2012, I was like, I said to my therapist, like, what if I gave up alcohol for an entire calendar year and wrote about it? Because I'm, you know, I'm a writer. This is what I do. This is how I live and process. And her eyes lit up and she was like, you've got to do that. You've got to do that because it would be great for you. But it's also, she's like, every single one of my patients would want to read that because we all, you know, everyone, you know, and this is really the gray area drinking, right? So these are people who are functioning just fine mm-hmm. in their lives, but are having a really hard time with alcohol. Yeah. So that was that. And I gave it up for a full year in 2012. I remember that. I remember when reading your blog posts about, and from what I, what I do remember, you know, you were feeling good and having all these revelations and writing and writing and writing. And then the end of the year came, did know when the end of the year was coming up, did you plan on drinking again? Or was it something that organically just happened? Like, what was the thought process? Did you feel like you were okay? Yeah. So I, okay. So when I did this, when I embarked upon this experiment and that's what I called it, I made a deal with myself, interestingly enough, that I would not blog about it or I would not publicly post about it for two months. So I did not even announce that I was doing it for two full months. And looking back, I realized I did that because a, I wasn't sure I could do it. (laughs) I didn't announce my sobriety for a year because of that. (laughs) Right. B, B, I didn't know, like, let's say I tried and it was not hard for me. I didn't even know Mm -hmm. that I'd want to do it. You know what I'm saying? I didn't know I'd want to stick to it for a year. So I kind of, what I did was I wrote about it profusely, but not publicly. And I let full two months go by. And at the two month point, I was feeling great. I had so many things to say. And that's when I announced it. Right. So at that point, I think, and you know, again, it's, it's a different story kind of looking back at things. I think I did this at the time and I intended it to be a year. You know what I'm saying? Intended it to be this like one year window into not drinking. And the year thing was very important to me because I wanted to experience every holiday, milestone, birthday, anniversary Mm -hmm. without it. Right. I wanted to see what a full calendar year would be like without it. But I always I think in the back of my mind, certainly when I realized that it was not hard physically for me to give it up. 
I felt like, why would I deprive myself forever? You know, like, why would I be so kind of abstemious and rigid? I kind of really thought that at a year mark, I would drink again. What's very interesting is that as that anniversary approached, I felt a lot of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And in part, because some people were challenging me, some people in my life were like, if you feel so amazing, why would you ever go back to it? And I was like, screw you, you know? You don't Um, know me. (laughs) Right. So that kind of pissed me off, probably because there was some truth in it. And then also, then I began to ask myself that question. I'm like, if this year has been so golden, which it was, I felt well, I was tremendously productive. I felt literally every area of my life improve, which is, that's saying a lot. If this is all true, why would I go back right. to it? No? I have a feeling that people that said that to you are not alcoholics. Like they are normal drinkers. So to them, it's like, it totally makes sense. But to someone right. like me and I'm like, I would be the same way. I'd be like, fuck you. I'm drinking again. <laughs> right, <laughs> I've right, done, exactly. I've paid my dues. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I, so yeah, I, I kind of knew I was going to drink again. I, I was a little kind of ambivalent, but I was truly convinced. What's interesting is I was truly convinced that I had all of this expertise now and this wisdom and that if I went back to drinking and I kind of planned to, it would be in this very, very curated, moderate, beautiful, filtered way, right? So I really, I thought that was what it would be. And interestingly, it was at times just like that. And then there were times that were exactly like it used to be. And that was horrible for me. It was worse than ever because I had had this full year glimpse of how great it could be without it. Mm. We're interrupting this podcast episode to tell you a little bit about one of our sponsors, RX Bar. They sent me a variety pack of their bars. They were sitting on the counter and my husband and my son got into them first before I even had a chance to. When I did, definitely my favorite is the chocolate coconut. I was pleasantly surprised how they tasted because you look at the ingredients. It is simply eggs, almonds, cashews, and coconut. And I was like, okay, we'll see. But it was absolutely, definitely my favorite. My husband and son liked the peanut butter chocolate the best. Turns out real food ingredients actually taste really good. Whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit flavors, there's an RX bar for you. They come in 11 delicious flavor varieties. They are gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, no added sugar, no artificial colors, artificial flavors, preservatives, or fillers, which is great for us because my son is gluten intolerant, so I was very happy to see that they were gluten-free. For 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com forward slash Y-K-A-L and enter the promo code Y-K-A-L at checkout. And it's what's interesting too from, and I don't know if you got this from a lot of people. I think I heard you on on Holly and Laura's home podcast and I think one of them was talking about it. Going through your story and I know I'm not the only one who was as somebody in recovery, you know, we were rooting for you to to be on our team for lack of a better term. And I, I hate to like group people like that, but it's what we do as humans. And I... I almost, I don't know if I took it personally, but I definitely, like, when I knew that you were back to drinking, I remember I thought to myself, oh my God, we lost one. 
Like, and I was bummed for you. And I think like my heart went out to you. And I knew though, I, I knew having been in recovery since 2011 myself, that if you were, if you really did have a problem and I'm like, she is going to know fairly quickly <laughs> that it's not for her. Like I, I just knew. And I can't remember if, if I was paying attention to your blog after that or not, or I, I may have stopped reading because I was like, well, if she's back to drinking, you know, <laughs> right, right. good, good luck. So how long did it take for you to continue the drinking or, or did something happen or where you decided you just needed to abstain? Well, I mean, I'd have to, I wrote so much. I was, you know, I actually applaud myself. It's kind of amazing how honest I was. I wrote, you know, about the back and forth. I wrote very honestly and hundreds of blog posts that, you know, someday might find their way into a book. We'll see. But I basically what that started. So going back to it started kind of maybe even four or five years of alternating between much longer stretches of not drinking, interestingly, and shorter little stints of drinking. So, you know, five or eight or nine months of not drinking would be followed by a month or two of drinking. Mm -hmm. So if you kind of added up the time of those four years, it was largely me not drinking. And so it was this kind of dance, I call it, which was pretty miserable. And nothing, again, nothing really horrific happened. You know, it was just more this kind of like me opening up my eyes and being really self-aware that I was kind of back in that place of just not feeling good about what I was doing. Again, not nothing objectively explosive was happening. Mm -hmm. I would say actually everything was like, you know, much less dramatic than it had ever been. But it was just like, I was, it's just, I knew better, you know? And it's like when you know something and when you know something important, you can't unknow it. So it was this knowing that was kind of like within me and following me around. And, you know, they were not four horrible years, right? They were four pretty great years because this was not at, this was not ruining my life. But what it was, was keeping me living the life that I knew I could live. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's a, my story is a subtler story, um, which is interesting because I have found myself apologizing at times for that fact. Feeling like your story isn't good enough. It's not. (laughs) Or bad enough, yeah. It's not really all that dramatic, Mm -hmm. right? And it never was. But I think it's worth telling because I think a lot of people relate, you know? And so last summer, I mean, it was last summer and I don't, it, again, there was no real precipitating event, but it was it last summer. It was two summers ago. I guess it was like two Julys ago. And for whatever, it was this very, very quiet realization, which I think was important for me because it wasn't anything remotely dramatic that I was reacting to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was just like, I want a certain kind of life and I want to be present as a wife and as a mom and as a friend and I want to write a lot of books and I want to like appreciate my days and I want to sleep well at night and I want all of these things and I know how to have that and it's by putting this one thing to the side Mm -hmm. and so that was kind of that you know and it was like I look back and all of that back and forth for me I I truly believe was necessary. I needed that kind of repeated evidence gathering for myself to kind of have it really lock in that like this was not something, 
that was compatible with the kind of life I wanted. Did you ever feel like, yeah, and I want to just underscore what you just said about like the evidence gathering. I've heard it called research too. It's like you need to go and do as much research as you need to do. It's part of your story to figure out, you know, what's going to work for you. Did you ever feel like, um, it sounds like you didn't, but I wanted to just ask just to make sure. Did you... Because you said that, you know, you're and I, I'm glad that you brought that up, that your story wasn't dramatic. And I think that some for some people listening, they think like that's somebody with a drinking problem, somebody who gets a DUI, who you know gets super drunk at her office Christmas party and tries to make out with her coworkers husband or, you know, like just does all these things that we see sort of in the media or these horror stories or even at recovery meetings, quite frankly, where we think like that's where you need to get. Did you ever think if I keep drinking, I might have that story or did that ever cross your mind? I mean, of course, because I believe wholeheartedly that this is kind of a continuum. And I think that um, the longer any of us drinks, the more possibility any of those things can happen, right? Um, so there was, there were bits of fear, of course, like no one is immune to those stories, like no one's immune to those happenings, right? Mm-hmm. I knew it was a good idea for me to stop, but ultimately what kind of clicked it for me um, in a solid kind of lasting way, it had a more positive flavor to it, which was if I give this one thing up, anything is possible. Mm -hmm. Like I can have not just like an okay life, like passable, like, all right, like, you know, decent, but like my life can be amazing, you know, and with this thing, it cannot. Yeah. And so it felt very, very positive. It didn't feel like I have to deprive myself of this thing because I have a real problem. That didn't work for me because, you know, when I drank, my life did not fall apart. Mm hmm. And I also know a lot of people around me who drank kind of the way I did for a very long time and their life did not fall apart, right. but they were sad people, mm-hmm. you know, there were mm-hmm. sad people who were kind of getting in their own way by continuing to do this thing. So the answer to your question is kind of yes and no. Like I believe that alcohol is addictive. I believe it wreaks havoc on so many lives in kind of profound and subtle ways. I believe that if we don't, you know, control ourselves or like move away from this thing, we can all end up as that person. Yeah. You know, and I could have, of course I could have. Anyone can. It's rolling the dice, really. You know, you don't, you don't know. Like, and I think the same thing, like I could have continued. I I think about that sometimes. Like, what if I would have continued to drink? The thing that scared me the most was how quickly the progression was happening. So my story looks a little bit different. I too struggle with anxiety. I was diagnosed with severe generalized anxiety disorder in 2003. And after actually during the first trimester of my pregnancies, both of them, it got really bad. And then after the birth of my son, who was my first child, I had really bad postpartum anxiety to the point where I couldn't even drive anymore. Okay. Wow. Panic attacks in the car. And just, yeah, it was, it was really bad. So also I, in my twenties and even a little bit before that, I struggled with codependency, love addiction, which I've talked about on the podcast. And I kind of flirted in and out with an eating disorder. So then I got help for those things, like in my early, very early thirties and felt really good and had all this therapy and recovery in those times. And then that's immediately when my drinking picked up. And for me, the progression was frightening. I went from 
just being able to, and in my twenties, like sure, I've been strange, just like, you know, your story you were talking about, but it, I could go, you know, the whole work week and not, it, it wasn't something that was on my mind as much as it was when I really kind of crossed that line over. And for me, it was scary because the progression was so fast and I was up to a bottle a night and I thought, to myself. And I, I did do an, a little bit of actual research online and found that statistics show that for women, the progression is faster. And right. scientists aren't really sure why. They think it might have something to do with the way that we process sugar. And just seeing all these statistics, scary statistics, quite frankly, about women and, and alcoholism and knowing that my father had struggled with it as well. I was ter- I got to a point where I was more terrified of what would happen to me if I continued. There was a very real chance that my marriage would totally fall apart. That, you know, and I just, I had just started my business that I would not be able to be successful because drinking would have an effect on that. I mean, cause I was like private messaging with like potential clients and speaking events drunk. Like, you know, yeah. at 11 o'clock at yeah. night and it's like these small things create tiny little holes in like a water balloon and then it just eventually all fucking falls apart. So it was exactly. just starting like those little things were just starting. That scared me more than the prospect of getting sober. And, and trust me when I tell you, I was terrified of getting sober. I couldn't yeah. imagine my life without alcohol. I was the fun girl. I struggle a lot with just awkward. We're all awkward. I think we yeah. all are. We are. We <laughs> and are. I right? felt like I. I was like overly awkward. It turns out I'm not. I'm just like anybody else. But like that uncomfortableness, like I couldn't, I couldn't bear it. And also like unprocessed pain and grief that I hadn't dealt with, like all of that kind of pile all that up, like, and, you know, maybe like throw a match on it. But if I threw booze in with it, forget it. It was all on fire. I knew that that's where I was headed. I knew. And for me, it was that I know that we all kind of spend time in this kind of like, limbo stage where we pretty much are sure that we need to do something about this, but we don't. Mm -hmm. That for some people lasts for years. And for me, it lasted two months. I couldn't stand it. Like I couldn't stand that place of knowing that I needed to quit. And I was so mad. I was mad that I needed to. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I can't, you know, do all these other things. Like I have to give up perfectionism and control and overachieving. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my goodness. Now I have to give up drinking. I know. I know. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't I know, know why I went off that on that tangent. But just I, I think that it can look different for everyone. But I think for so many of us, the underlying reasons and feelings are all the same. And I, I just also want to underscore, underscore and thank you for sharing about your story. And what we call that is a typically called like a high bottom where you don't have to have these like life altering effects because of your drinking to actually quit. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I realized the more I talk about this. And I really, I love talking about it and I believe in talking about it because I don't, I feel like more and more people are beginning to talk about it, but I feel like for a while now, it's been very hush hush in a way that's destructive. Mm -hmm. And the more I talk about it, the more I realize that there are a lot of people out there like me Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and this slightly quieter story, I often call it like the early exit from drinking, which is that, of course, I was struggling. I was suffering. That was not a good thing in my life. And it was something that I, I wanted very much to take out of the picture and ultimately succeeded in doing so. There are a lot of people out there and 
I've been trying kind of wholeheartedly in the last, you know, maybe year or so to reach those people in particular, because I think that they get lost in the shuffle because they are not necessarily outwardly identifying with any label. I don't Mm -hmm. identify with any label. They have identified perhaps privately that alcohol is really not good for them. Like it just doesn't have like a positive place in their life, but they don't either know how to articulate that or connect with others who are feeling that. And they certainly do not know how to kind of remove it from the picture because they're in a world or a life where it's everywhere. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I got on this podcast bandwagon like you with my friend Jolene Park. And we are, you know, she has a very similar story to mine. And we are kind of trying our best to explore the enigmatic gray area of drinking where Mm -hmm. a lot of these people fall who will kind of, if they continue to drink, you know, things will become a little bit more extreme because that's the way it works. So Mm -hmm. I think the message that it does not take, you don't need to reach a certain level of anything to stop, right? Like if you have that kind of instinct in your body that this thing is not good for you and does not do positive things for your sense of self or your life, like you can just stop doing it. And then on the other side, I'm not saying it's like sunshine and rainbows because it's hard sometimes, but it is amazing to me to wake up day after day and learn how my life is brightening because Mm -hmm. of this one decision, right? This one decision to take out alcohol, every piece of my life has brightened and hard stuff is happening to me. Honestly, my mom is not well, like there is stuff that is very, very hard, but I'm okay because I'm not drinking. It's Mm -hmm. so weird. It's like, Mm -hmm. really, it's really baffling. I'm like, why am I not falling apart right now? Oh, I'm strong, you know, I'm strong and I'm sleeping and I, I have my stuff together and I'm not drowning in this thing that is bad for me. That's a yes to all of that. I I know my lost my dad in October. It's been almost a year now. And I, you know, I had, what did I have? Five years. I think I had just celebrated five years and I, I recorded a podcast episode specifically about that. I can link up to it in the show notes because I always wondered, you know, when I got sober, I had two toddlers, which that was probably like the hardest thing in my life, (laughs) raising toddlers and getting sober, but I hadn't had anything big happen. And I always kind of wondered, you know, it's like that, like, oh God, what's going to happen if something big happens? You know, cause I knew my parents, you know, are obviously getting older and, and I knew it was inevitable. And then when he died and it was, it was very quick. Like we found out he was terminal and three weeks later he was gone and I was with him when oh, he died. And so I, hard. and I, it was brutal. And I remember really wondering like, what, what am I will I drink again? You know? And I, I thought, and I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people in recovery, like sometimes I don't have these very often anymore. I used to have them a lot in the beginning, like these relapse, like fantasies. Like if I do ever drink again, it's going to be because, you know, like Oprah offers me a martini and we're sitting in her, you know, patio, something (laughs) like super romantic and glamorous. Or I'd have this weird daydream that it would be because someone that I love more than anything dies. And it would be, it would have to be for a really good and noble reason, you know, where people would be like, Oh yeah, I totally get it. Which is such bullshit like that is for me that is my addiction like whispering in my ear like oh it's it's, let's go back let's go back so I didn't drink and I I recorded a whole podcast episode about how I didn't do it I am curious to hear about your tools like what are the like how how did you how did you do it what did you did you feel like you had to replace your drinking with anything or is there anything any kind of behavior that you're doing differently now that helps you stay sober it's a really good question I you know 
I've said this several times, but that books are the new booze because I, I mean, I've, oh, look, I'm an author and I've always loved books and I've always been a reader, but in the last several years, and it's no coincidence, I've become a voracious reader, right? Mm -hmm. So I almost get anxiety about books that I did about drinking. Like, do I have enough books on cue (laughs) to read? And if I don't, I get a little nervous. (laughs) So much out there, right? And you know what I realized, and again, it's these amazing kind of points of clarity you have subsequently that you can't have while you're in the like fog of drinking. But when I was drinking and when I was putting that first, and you know, whether it was like a couple of drinks a night or more, you're not going to be in the headspace where you're going to sit down and read for a couple of hours and really enjoy it and really absorb it. And so, you know, making that one choice to kind of keep drinking, like there wasn't the space for as many books. Right. And when I took it out of the equation, I realized, oh, my God, I feel great at 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, can, I can read a book. I can read a book for an hour or two. And so I would say that reading and story and words like have been my replacement. Less healthy replacements, of course, have been like food indulgences, which, right. you know, honestly, is not a huge issue, but maybe was more so in the very beginning. And I feel really good when I'm exercising, although I wish I was better about making it a priority. And what's interesting in the last week or so, I've become obsessed with like organizing my home, which completely, I'm really, really self-aware person. And I know it's because things in other areas of my life are really uncertain Mm -hmm. and out of control and chaotic. And so I'm like, what I can do is read Marie Kondo's book and then take every article of clothing out of my closet and put them in piles and then donate 70% of it. Doesn't you know, feel so, so much bad. That feels, I, I, I will give you that one. I will give you that one. Yes. That, it, feels, do that. It, it feels amazing. <laughs> it feels amazing. Right. But I'm aware, right. I'm aware that th- this is a coping, you know, yeah. is, is it healthier than drinking wine? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I think we're human beings, right. Yeah. And, we, and we need to look to things and we need to find ways to soothe ourselves and, you know, obviously the ideal would be that we're like a hundred percent present in every moment, feeling everything and like just facing it head on. And I think I am much more in that place than I was a year ago, two years ago, but we need things, right? Like we need, we need people and we need activities and we need things to kind of reach for in these moments of feeling out of sorts and vulnerable. And I think we always will. Yeah. Did you feel like, I've got one more question for you before we wrap up. And in regards to tools and staying sober, I'm really curious about your friends and, you know, did you, I know you had a trusted therapist, which was probably great for you, but did you, I know for some people that listen, they, they don't feel like they have anyone, you know, like everyone either poo-poos, you know, when someone confesses that they think they have a drinking problem or, you know, they don't want to lose their drinking buddy or they just don't have that person who can sit there and hear their story of, I think that this is a problem and I'm really struggling. And, you know, can you just hear me for a minute? Or sometimes I know this is common. They don't have a partner that, that mm-hmm. is supportive. And so did you have anyone besides your beside your therapist that you could turn to and say, I know that you blogged, so you had like the entire internet. So, (laughs) but in terms of like real life face to face, like, cause I know you, there are probably some things that you, that are private and that like, like breakdowns and stuff like that. Did you have one or two people in your life? Yeah. I mean, I really, I mean, it's, that's, I can answer that question relatively easily because I had my husband, you know, Mm -hmm. and I have said this to him, you know, recently as, you know, this week, like, how did you know how to handle me and all of this so perfectly? Because he 
listened to me like a broken record, frankly, for years mm-hmm. where I would overdo it. I would wake up at 4 a.m. and be so upset with myself and hate myself and just be like, I would just wake him up, which is not nice. <laughs> and <laughs> the devil's and not nice. Right. And I would just open up to him and he would listen and he would comfort me. And even though he was frustrated because he is he has admitted as much, you know, later on, he said that wasn't a time for him to talk about his frustration. It was a time to be there for me. And he said that he believed that I was inching towards getting there on my own, which I was. But he knew it and I didn't, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. And he was always 100 percent there for me to kind of talk about this stuff. And it was a progression because I did increasingly have a lot more self-awareness. And then I had that year under my belt. And I, so I was getting somewhere. And I think that was very gratifying for him because he was becoming less frustrated, but he never pushed me. He never said, you need to stop. He never, he, he left the ball in my court the entire time. And I, to this day, I don't really understand how he was capable of being that generous because he was really the only person because I have lots and lots and lots of friends who are wonderful friends and great people, many of whom were drinking buddies because that's kind of how I orchestrated my life. So they were absolutely willing to listen to me. And I tried it. I tried this conversation out with a few friends. They would listen to me a hundred percent, but more often than not, they would kind of tell me that I was fine. And that like, you know, you're just being hard on yourself. You're really self-aware. You're like, you know, why are you so self-critical? Similar with my family, to be honest. You know, I feel like very much this is my story and not my family story. So I shy away from talking about my family. But I was kind of like putting a magnifying lens on something that maybe my family didn't want to do. So there was an element of these conversations being a little bit threatening. And I also kind of got the message back, like you're being extremely perfectionistic and, you know, really almost holier than that, you know, like, so it was like this, Mm. this questioning that was happening very organically for me and was very pressing to me. I was receiving a lot of messages from a lot of people in my life, like, just calm down, stop, 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 stop. So this was very, very much within me. And, you know, thank God I had my husband and have him now. And he's just a sweetheart. And like, I still don't understand how he had the right instincts over all of these years to kind of like be the person I needed at that moment, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. So, and then, and then the internet, which is interesting, like it was extremely helpful and clarifying for me to write about it and to connect with some people that way. And I have like a dedicated Instagram called drive club, which is really for people kind of in my kind of like cohort of gray area drinking and not drinking. Mm-hmm. And that has been really, really uplifting and just realizing that there's so many bright, interesting, thoughtful, ambitious people out there who are questioning this continues to inspire me. Yeah. Oh, that's so awesome. I could talk to you all day, Aiden. Thank you so much for being here. And it's such an important topic. What I'm going to do is I'm going to link up everybody to Aiden's blog and her podcast and her Instagram account that she mentioned. And you can also find her books on that blog. Is that correct? Yes. yes, Okay. That is all in the show notes. And I encourage you all to jump over there and find out more about that. And I follow you on that Instagram account. And it's, it's a really great and motivational and inspirational place to be. So thank you so much for being here. I so appreciate this conversation. 
Well, thank you for having me and thank you for doing all that you're doing to kind of magnify and carry forward this really, really important conversation. Yes, you are welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you to all of you listening for being here and for being a part of this recovery series and just the podcast in general. And until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. Hey, ass kickers, you know what would help me out so much if you left a rating and review for this podcast. Your Kick-Ass Life podcast will always be free to you and to help me get more awesome guests and to spread the word, it helps tremendously if you leave a rating and a review. Now, they don't particularly make this super easy to do, so I'll help you out a little. If you're in iTunes and you're on your phone, when you are in the podcast app, you need to search for Your Kick-Ass Life podcast. I know, even if you're subscribed, This is how you do it. So when you search for it and you see it come up, click on the cover art, then towards the top where it says reviews, click that, scroll down a tiny little bit, and then click write a review. Stitcher is a bit easier if you're on Android. The easiest way I found to do this is to type into Google stitcher.com, your kick-ass life, and voila, my podcast should pop up as the first link. Scroll down and click write a review. That's it. Thank you so very much. You have no idea how much it helps me when you do that. All right. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.